It is my pleasure to introduce Neil Pollard. Uh, probably uh, you know him better than you do me, uh, but uh, glad to have him. Those who were here last night uh, saw the great ability he has proclaimed the word. Uh, he was born in Oxford, Mississippi, into a Christian family, a preaching family. And I'm sure that's where he got a lot of his training. His father has been an outstanding preacher, worked in an area, worked in areas where the church really was needed, where it was a really mission field. We don't think about mission fields being down south, but there's some down south that are mission fields. And his father's worked in those. And so I'm sure he's that's part of his biggest uh, part of his education. He did go, of course, to Faulkner and got some education, Freed Hardeman, gone through uh, Bear Valley. Uh, and is now working as MDF through Ambridge. Uh, but the main thing is, he's a man of the book. And he, he really got his education right here. Yeah. And that's the main part. He's one of those people uh, that has talents, all kinds of talents, in all kinds of areas. Uh, there's some people who are good in one thing and not so good in another. Neil is good at everything. And he is especially good at dealing with people. And his greatest trait is his humility. He, I have appreciated uh, the time that I was here uh, while he was here with us. I uh, knew him before then, but I really appreciated uh, the years he spent here and getting better acquainted with him. So well, I know that we're in for a great treat. Uh, it's a good subject. Basically, the idea is our pulpits ought to be places of hope. Amen. He'll do a good job with it. Neil Pollard. Are you going to do this or me? Well, after an introduction like that, let me say in conclusion, it's been good for us to be here. You know, my heroes have always been preachers. Uh, when I think about uh, what Wayne said, and by the way, if you don't know this, uh, my dad and, and Wayne were students together at Fried Hardeman University in 1874. And, uh, they, uh, no, and, and they... Uh, I usually say soon after Noah's Right, right. Um, but you're younger you know, than you look. But, um, but it's, it, it is true that that's such a great heritage. Uh, when I think about uh, what a great joy it was to have uh, in my family... Not only my father, a preacher, uh, been preaching nearly 60 years, uh, but my father-in-law, uh, a preacher. Um, my brother is a gospel preacher. Uh, my brother-in-law, who married uh, Kathy's sister, is a preacher. And now all three of my sons have, have gone into preaching. So you can imagine what it's like at Thanksgiving when we get together. We talk about anything but preaching, you know. Um, but it, it, they, the love that that I have for preachers um, makes me want to, to talk about this particular subject. So I was so thrilled when it was assigned to me. W.T. Hamilton married Carrie Nichols, one of Gus and Matilda Nichols' daughters, and he did effective uh, preaching for several decades, and his son Nick also was a gospel preacher, and he wrote several books. And one of the books that he wrote is one I have in my library. It's Meditations on the Book of Job. And the name of that book was Yet Trouble Came. And it was in the middle of that book when he was writing about Job and the friends that came to him that he made a statement I thought was very impressive. He says, There is no heartache more severe than that brought on by words which should not have been said. Amen. He included also in that a poem that said, A careless word may kindle strife, a cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate and steal. 
a brutal word may smite and kill. But I want you to contrast that with what especially Solomon says about the speech that we, that we offer up. In Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 11, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And similar, he says in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 23, a man has joy in an apt answer and a delightful word. How timely is it? When you think about what the Apostle Paul says in instructing a young preacher in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, he gives the totality of what that preaching will look like, reproof, rebuke, and exhorting. But he says, I want you to do all of that with great patience and instruction. Amen. And when you look at the life of Paul and as we see him in the various settings in which he preached the gospel, he lived what he was that he, that he said that we ought to do. And I think about the Apostle Paul as he stands in front of Herod Agrippa. He's on his way to testify to Nero. And it's very insightful in Acts chapter 26 as he stands before Agrippa. And it must have been such a contrast of a scene. The opulence and the pomp and the ceremony of Agrippa and the humble man in chains standing in front of him. And he tells him why he's in chains. He says, the reason I'm in change is because of the, the, the trait that I share with the Pharisees, that we stand in, in hope of the promise that was given to our forefathers. Acts chapter 26 and verse 6. And he says, the rest of the Jews, they want to attain that same hope. Acts chapter 26 and verse 7. And later on, he talks about what happens to him on Damascus Road. And that's where I want us to focus our attention today. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to look in Acts chapter 26, look at what Paul is saying in testimony of himself in Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 16. He says, the whole, the, 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 as he talks about this, he says, For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things to which I will appear afterward to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and the Gentile people to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those which are saved sanctified by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and in all of the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance." Now, in these few words to Herod, and it wasn't the purpose that he was sharing these words... He talks about how to preach in order to give hope to those living in troublesome times. But what I want you to think about for just a moment is the context in which the Apostle Paul said those words. And think about how troublesome those times were. And there's different ways for us to measure that. The times in which Paul is preaching and doing his ministry were times that were troublesome in economic terms. It might be interesting for you to go and to research what life was like for the average person living in the Roman Empire. The vast majority of them were poor, and they faced a daily hardship. And the Apostle Paul knew that full well. But here's something that went even beyond that. If you were a person living somewhere under the auspices of the Roman Empire, and you became a Christian, life got even harder. You were blackballed, and you were ostracized by your society. According to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, it was a struggle for the people to whom the Hebrews writer was speaking. But if you think about just the general conditions that would have brought about economic hardship in those days, it might be something like a natural disaster. 
In Acts chapter 11 and verse 28, the occasion whereby the Apostle Paul has given his marching orders in Acts chapter 15 to take this contribution he's been collecting for the relief because of the famine that had stricken especially the Jewish part of the world. But then there was also uh, racial prejudice that they faced that created economic hardship. You remember in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2, the apparently somewhat wealthy Aquila and Priscilla were forced out by the edict of Emperor Claudius. And so many of those Jews had to leave their homes behind and their possessions, creating hardship. Or, or think about one of the themes of the book of James where you have folks who were, were poor, who were disfavored by ethical practices that were dubious and that, and that caused them to lose even more. The have-nots lost even more. And so the Apostle Paul did his ministry all over the world and in circumstances where folks faced that kind of an economic challenge. But that wasn't all. Think about the politically challenging times in which they lived, in which Paul was speaking to Agrippa. Think about the conditions that existed. When you especially look at hot spots, and this wasn't the only one, but it was one of the central ones during the first century when the church was being established was in that land of Palestine. And there were factions and there were intrigues and there were extremists that constantly caught the attention of the imperial government and they had to respond to that. But in addition to that, you had Jesus on his way to the cross. But even before that, when he's answering questions of the disciples in Matthew chapter 24, and he speaks about what was going to happen in that very generation of time. Matthew 24, 3 through 35, looking through the eyes of Josephus and others back on this, we're going to see that there are political connections to this. Like through the zealots and others who are going to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem. When we think about the politics of the, the first century world, think about Gamaliel. In, in Acts chapter 5, talking about these false Messiah movements that had preceded this, when you think about what kind of a Messiah they're looking for that was going to cause uh, political problems. And so as we think about the world in which Paul preached, it was a time of political challenge. but It was also a time of racial challenge, wasn't it? When we think about the tension that we just mentioned a moment ago between the Romans and the Jews, and here they are, the Romans were the owners, and the Jews were now renters of a land that they saw as their land of promise, and it created this racial tension. They resented those Jews. Remember Pilate? He kind of poked his finger in the eyes of them earlier in his, his rule as governor. It was this racial undertone that was always there. And of course, don't we know, that the Gentiles had an extreme prejudice against the Romans. When you consider the many texts of Scripture that kind of highlight that for us, what about in Acts chapter 21 when the Apostle Paul is falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the, ten uh, into the temple and how it created this uproar that caused Paul to be arrested? Or, or Paul in the middle of that great treatise in the book of Romans spending three chapters essentially talking about, although he speaks to Jew and Gentile, about that racial prejudice problem in Romans 9 through 11. Or what about in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 16? No less than the eminent Peter who is uh, given in to racial prejudice and even pulls away the son of encouragement, Barnabas. Racial tensions were real in the early church by the Jew against the Gentile, but it was also the Gentile against the Jew. 
many have been the commentators and teachers who have told us in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 41, one of the great applications of Jesus teaching us to love our enemies when he says if they compel you to go one mile, go with them two miles, and how often it has been reported that there was a minimum uh, a compilation that they could make a Jew take their pack, a Roman soldier, a mile. And Jesus is saying, don't just go to that post that would been driven in the ground and lay it down in some kind of defiant move, but to take it a second mile. Well, the, the, the Romans saw themselves as superiors to all other nations. And so there was this prejudice that existed. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, isn't there this idea that you may have to suffer? And if you look in the context, that's at the hands of the Gentiles. Peter writing to a Jewish audience, and the Gentiles showed prejudice against the Jews. But it was also a time of spiritual challenge. I mean, you have to be impressed with the New Testament writers moving by the Holy Spirit in in those to talk about how there's just about every kind of immoral, ethical, and uh, and moral problem that was existing in the first century world. And some of the long texts of Scripture that devote themselves to addressing these things. Look at Romans chapter 1 or Colossians chapter 3 or 1 Timothy chapter 1 or 2 Timothy chapter 3 or 2 Peter chapter 2. And so as Paul stands there in his chain, in front of Agrippa. It was a time of great challenge. The point's already been made, and so I'm not going to belabor it. We live in times just like that. Oh, some of the variables are, and the details are different. But don't we live in times of economic challenge? Don't we live in times that are politically challenging? Aren't there racial fomentations that cause upheaval in society right now? Aren't there moral and ethical struggles? And the answer today is the answer that was existing in the first century. Here's Paul in another context in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 saying, For the word of the cross is foolishness to them that perish, but to the us who are saved it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Has not God made the foolish? Uh, uh, has not God not made the wisdom of this world foolish? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, as Paul is standing there, he's getting ready to depart and to make good on what God told him he was going to do, and standing before the top of the government of the world, he incidentally gives us four things that can help us as preachers to bring hope in a troublesome world. And I want us to point them out there, especially in Acts chapter 26, verse 18 through 20. And so we're going to narrow our focus down in our text to those three verses. Number one, I want you to notice with me that hope-centered preaching is preaching that opens eyes. I want you to see that in verse 18. You see, Paul tells Agrippa what Jesus told him on the road, explaining why he had appeared to him. It was to appoint him a minister and a witness of what he had seen and what he was going to see to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Now, we've not had a bodily encounter with Jesus. But through the revelation of his word, we also are ministers and we are witnesses of what God has done. You see, Christ wanted Paul to preach to people in order to open their eyes so that they could see why they should follow God. Isn't it like the servant of Elisha? Do you remember in 2 Kings chapter 6 where there's an occasion where that servant is so disturbed by the Arameans that are circling the city? 
And in and, and, and 2 Kings 6 and 16, he says, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And so God prays, I mean, Elisha prays to God at that moment in 2 Kings 6 and 17. And he says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when that happens, he sees things as they really are. Do you notice yourself as you preach the gospel that you're in just the same place? You're trying to get people to open their eyes to see things as they really are. Who's got the cameras? Who's got the microphones? Who's got the media outlets? And the things that they're saying and portraying undermine hope, undercut the hope that we ought to have in this life. And so God has us as those who preach the word, as those who cut through the darkness and let people see the light so that they can see in those moments that God has a message of hope because it allows people to see God. You know, Peter's the preacher who first preaches the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He speaks of the living hope that's possible through the resurrection of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And we didn't make this point last night, but I want you to see the, the connection that Peter makes between hope and preaching. You'll see it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. He says that through preaching the gospel, it helps us to fix our hope on the grace that is going to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And later on down there, when he talks about when they obeyed the gospel in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, he says the word that was preached to them produced a faith and a hope in God. All right, shift your focus to Paul. And Paul, as he gets to the end of that first letter to the Corinthians, he is trying to establish hope as he preaches on the resurrection. And so it is throughout the rest of the New Testament. These inspired writers, they are preaching a preaching of hope because it opens people's eyes to the way things really are. You know, we tend to look at the grand picture that's painted by a world whose canvas is self and whose palette is missing the bright colors of hope that are only possible through the truth of the gospel. What do we expect the world to tell us? They're going to paint a grim and dark picture of life. And so God has designed gospel preaching as an alternative to the world's bleak portrait of the life as it is without Him. The right kind of preaching opens people's eyes. Amen. I want you to think about it in the ways in which it does. The right kind of preaching helps older people see past the problems of age and infirmity. The right kind of preaching helps us to look past the uncertainty of government policies and government regimes. The right kind of preaching helps us to see past the economic turbulence of society, the trials and the struggles of our personal lives and our interpersonal relationships. It helps us to see through those dark clouds of sin and temptation that settle over our, our eyes. How often do we cry as they cried in the long ago in Psalm 119 and verse 18, Open my eyes that I may, may behold wonderful things out of your law. You see, as we think about preaching in troublesome times, hope-centered preaching is that which opens eyes. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing we notice, it seems to me, as we look at Acts 26, again at verse 18, is that hope-centered preaching shows the way to forgiveness of sins. Now, how effectively could Paul respond to the commission of Christ who sent him to the Jew and to the Gentile to preach forgiveness of sins? He could preach a first-person message. He could tell those that he spoke to about how that had occurred in his own life. Let me share something with you. It's just a personal opinion. I think sometimes that personal testimonial preaching can be overdone. 
It can get out of focus. If it casts a shadow on the cross of Calvary and it puts us in front of the cross, then I think we've gone too far. But I think sometimes maybe we have not done enough of saying, look, this is where I was and here's where God has brought me to. It shows us that because there are so many people sitting on the pew Sunday after Sunday who have a serious doubt that they could be forgiven of the sins in their lives. And despite our best efforts and maybe even preaching the sermons that we need to preach, they still struggle with that because you know what? They live in their head. They know who they are better than anybody else does. And so when we can stand in the pulpit, not as somebody who was looking down on, but as somebody who was reaching across to and saying, look, I understand what you're struggling with. We all struggle in different ways. But listen, the, the message of Jesus Christ is that, that forgiveness of sins, it's possible. When you think about what Paul could be talking about, when you look into his life, he says some of that right here in Acts chapter 26, doesn't he? When he looks back on his own life, notice with me here, he talks about his own forgiveness. In verse 9, he talks about how he did many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes on and he says, I imprisoned them, I testified against them, I punished them, I intimidated them, I was furiously enraged against them. Verse 10 and verse 11. But now he's converted. Now life is different. And notice he testifies in verse 22 and 23 both to the small and to the great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ should suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim life to the Jews and to the Gentiles. But as you know, he didn't just say it here in front of this pagan king. He says it on other occasions. He says it to a young preacher in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He said, I had been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but God showed me mercy and grace through faith and love. In verse 15 and 16, he says, I was the foremost of sinners, but I was saved by God's wonderful grace. In another context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, he says, I persecuted the church of God, but I was extended God's powerful, magnificent grace. But you know what? We don't need Paul's bloody and checkered past to be able to preach with the same kind of passion the forgiveness of sins because every preacher who ever stands before anybody else is a preacher who has been saved from this present evil age. Galatians 1 and verse 4. Amen. All of us have been saved from the domain of darkness according to Colossians 1 and verse 13. We have all been saved from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. And if we are fully convicted of this ourselves, how will we preach? We will preach with the compassion of the prodigal son's father. Luke 15 and verse 20. We will preach with kindness and gentleness and patience. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 2, verse 24 and 25. We will preach with a genuine love for everybody that's ever before us. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. We will grow to be more like the Jesus whose blood we need to cover our sins. Oh, how that will impact our preaching. That doesn't mean that we can preach a false or distorted hope. Here's the same Paul who says in Acts 20 verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring unto you all the purpose of God. We won't preach a superficial peace, peace when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6, 14 and Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 11. We will preach God's wonderful plan of salvation simply and entirely. Acts 2 verse 37 through 41. And then we will swerve neither to the left or the right of Bible Center 
and laying out every duty and expectation that God has for every one of us. But there are so many who are racked with guilt, who sit before us, who are like those that David describes in Psalm 38 and Psalm 51. They are desperate to know that there's hope for them. And there is. And we have got to make sure that we share that when we preach. In Psalm chapter 38, David's mind is on his sin problem. And he shows us how to pray to God in time of self-inflicted trouble. Those of us preachers, we need to preach Psalm 38. Here's a four-point outline for you if you want it. Number one, acknowledge how your sin makes God feel. Verse 1 and 2. It starts with conviction. Number two, specifically address the seriousness of your sin. Verse 4 through 8. Number three, confess your inability to resolve this sin problem alone. That's verse 9 through 14. And number four, tell God of your hope that He will be with you. Verse 15 through 22. We know Psalm 51 better. David is coming after Nathan the prophet has appeared to him. He is a penitent one, and he shows us the heart of a penitent person. We need to preach Psalm 51 because it's beautiful. It's more than just about that. Here's four points from there. Number one, acknowledge what you have done. Not if I have offended you in any way, God, but be very specific. Lay yourself out bare and transparent before God. That's the beginning of healing is to come face to face with what's really going on in my life. Number two, understand what God can do. It is one of the great focuses of this psalm, if not the central one, is what God is able to do in healing and bringing about forgiveness. Number three, do what you must do. You'll notice in this psalm the words of resolve from David like, then and that and I will and shall be. And then number four, help others do what they should do. The last part of the psalm is to focus on our mission with others. Folks need to hear that. I believe that effective and God-pleasing preaching connects the hope of forgiveness with all who are wallowing in their sin to accept Jesus' invitation when He says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. Number three, hope-centered preaching points people to an inheritance and to sanctification. That's also in verse 18. You know, mankind tries to construct all kind of inequalities that puts us up above others or even sees ourselves as lower than others. We do that based on things like race and economics and on finance and on gender and on education. But the Lord makes it profoundly simple. All of mankind can be broken down into two classes, the saved and the lost. And what God is going to say ultimately through His Son to the saved is, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But you'll notice that Paul frequently weds the ideas of sanctification and inheritance as he does right here. Sanctification simply means to dedicate to the service of and loyalty to deity and to cause one to have the quality of holiness. The inheritance is the reward that's promised to those who hear and believe and obey the instruction. So that means that the gospel preacher partners with God to let his hearers know both their responsibilities and the reward. No matter how meager or destitute our earthly situation may be, we need to be told how valuable we are to God and how much He longs to bless us. Wayne talked about my dad, and I know my dad's not the only one to do this, but especially as I got older and I was thinking about, you know, I need to be able to know how to make a resume. 
Uh, and I, I went to Faulkner when Brother Wendell Winkler was there, and he did such a great job. But it, it, despite that, my first trainer, my dad, I always wanted to go back to him and say, Dad, what do you think about this? And so I got to see my dad's resumes, and I have through the years. And he had a, there's a philosophy statement on there. Maybe you've done that with your resumes. And his philosophy, I know it's not original with him. He says, my philosophy is to comfort the afflicted, and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and my dad's, now my dad's retired now, but all that means is he's still preaching, but he's not getting paid for it. And, and every Sunday, my dad preaches for a little congregation in Andrews, North Carolina, and I have watched him all of my life. And he has continued to follow that philosophy. Aren't there so many afflicted folks who need to know the comfort that comes at the end of this life as they remain walking in the light? A comfort that comes in the midst of the things that Richard mentioned a moment ago in their Gethsemane moments that we go through. And when we afflict the comfortable, what we're trying to do is to convict them that there is a promise of reward that needs to be preserved and not ruined by walking in the light of Christ. Hope is the ultimate objective, whether in preaching we are reproving, rebuking, or exhorting. And then number four, hope-centered preaching urges people to repent and to turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now that's what he says down in verse 20. Paul tells Agrippa that his preaching included an urgent need for people to repent and to turn and to do what's right. But if you think about it, because a self-guided life is a life that leads to destruction, Proverbs 16, 18, Jeremiah 10, and verse 23, calling people to repentance is still a hope-centered message. We're trying to show them of what God wants for us, and He knows what sin will do in our lives. And so repentance is a necessary cog in a hope-filled life, and it doesn't happen without it. Don't you think about the prophets for a moment? Their messages included judgment language. And there was always this call to repentance. And But what you'll find is in the middle of several of those prophetic books, and at the end of all of them, there's a message of hope. Amen. When we get to the New Testament, you see the same thing in the preaching that's done. There's always that, yes, there's a sin problem. Think about Acts chapter 2. You crucified Him, the one that God made both Lord and Christ. They said, what can we do? Peter said, nothing. No. He says there's a way out. You see, repentance and baptism stands between forgiveness of sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. Repentance leads to times of refreshing. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. It is repentance and then life. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Repentance comes before salvation and having sin absolved and being found innocent. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 and 11. I don't know many preachers who enjoy telling people to turn away from things that their flesh want them to do in this life. And yet, one can be separated from Christ, Ephesians 2 and verse 12. And so as the times grow darker in our world, the need for distinctive preaching grows greater, but it's also the, the surest way that there is to instill a hope that survives and it grows whatever men may do to us, Psalm 118 and verse 6. Isn't it remarkable that that wasn't even Paul's purpose in standing in front of Agrippa was to say, here's four things that will cause a preacher to preach hope in a troublesome time. And yet he does it. God, his spirit through Luke, does that. He gives us, man, four great things. If we'll keep it in the center of our heart, can help us to produce hope every time that we preach. Amen. In the few moments that we have left, I want to I consider some ending observations that hopefully can help us about hope-centered preaching. Number one, 
So many out there have spiritually blinded eyes. You know, Paul used that, that idea, that image in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. And so here's the thing. Preachers need a methodical plan to teach and preach the whole counsel of God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, Paul could say that he had done that. So how do we do that? Do you keep track of what you preach? Do you have some way to be able to analyze, am I preaching too much on this subject? When's the last time I preached on this? And so we need to have some way to check ourselves and to make sure that we're preaching everything that folks need in order to be ready to stand before Christ. Amen. We need some way to evaluate our preaching. Are we being effective? Um, now, I've done this sometimes. I can't remember if I did it, Corey, at Bear Valley. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but there have been times where I've said, so tell me, you know, what suggestions do you have for my preaching? And Denny will know this. I know I've watched guys say, hey, Denny, how did, what do you think of that sermon? I never asked Denny, how did I do? Because <laughs> Denny's going to tell it like it is. So I, to this day, have not done that. But we need some way to say, listen, and make it constructive. Tell me. Tell me about my preaching. Am I helping you to accept responsibility in your personal life, in your home? on the job, at school, in the world, and in the church. You see, God is counting on the preacher to provide the remedy through preaching. Many will do better when they know better. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, Paul says, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so, we need to keep in mind that there are so many out there who have spiritually blinded eyes. Number two, does our preaching make forgiveness seem possible or elusive? Amen. Balanced preaching demands a balanced view of God's judgment and His mercy. We need to share with people God's motivation in sending Christ. It was because of His great love when we were without strength. Romans chapter 5, verse 6-8. through eight. It also emphasizes the blessed assurance that comes from a Christian who's walking in the light. A confidence that we can have. Some rich ideas there. Being born of God in First chapter, First uh, John chapter 1 and how we bear the characteristics of God. We don't have to worry as we're walking in the light. Good preaching is not permissive or pessimistic because both extremes undermine hope. Number three, hope-inspired preaching will include a lot of preaching about our exalted identity and our matchless expectations. If I had a wide enough form, I would want to say to every preacher, preach repeatedly on heaven and on eternal life. Preach the endless spiritual blessings available only in Christ. Preach on the idea that Christians are God's children, that we have a perfect father and we have a sinless older brother who understands everything that we're going through. Preach on how we can build an intimate relationship with God. Preach the exalted nature of the church. Amen. Number four, frequently solicit questions from the congregation about what concerns them and what they want to know more about. A little over a year ago, um, actually it was before Hiram got there, we started a Q&A. And it kind of took on a life of its own, and we have one every month. And I always tell folks, look, Hiram is preaching next month, so save your hard questions for, the, for that month. <laughs> but it is great to know what's on people's mind. What a, what a fantastic way, not a, certainly not original with us, but to be able to poll what people are thinking about. This is the way we can show them a better way to hope. We don't know what they're struggling with sometimes if we don't ask that. Number five, be a wise man who understands the times. 
you know, this is certainly something we sometimes talk about, the men of Issachar and King Ahasuerus' is wise men. And if we make spiritual application of that, we can show spiritual, we can show our understanding of how we ought to pursue God's spiritual law. We can show uh, those that are, are struggling with God's law and God's justice. That means that we need to be observers of the world in which we live. That doesn't mean be social media junkies, and it doesn't mean to be cable uh, TV news addicts, but it does mean that we're going to spend some time to know the world that's around us, that we're going to understand what's going on around us. Paul did this by getting out of his tower of isolation, and he got out among the people, and he spent life among them. You know, there have been times in my preaching life where I feel like I've isolated myself too much. It is then that we have got to get ourselves out and say, I'm going to do like Paul. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 18, Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and he says, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Doing what, Paul? Verse 20. I was teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. If you'll look at Luke's record of Paul and Acts and you'll read Paul's writings themselves in the epistles, you're going to see how involved he was in people's lives. And it was through this that he was able to influence them through his preaching. If preachers make themselves hermits that cloister themselves in isolation, we're not going to know how we can best help people in their journey toward hope. And so, interaction helps us to know what's going on in people's lives. Number six. Be clear on what positive, hope-inspiring preaching is not. It is not preaching that dodges the issues. When the pulpit is silent on moral and doctrinal issues, negative results follow, and it really undermines hope. It's also preaching that is not preaching that never calls names. There are times when names and ideas and actions must be explicitly addressed. Every time, no. To the exclusion of comforting lessons? No. With an acrimonious attitude? No. But you see, as we think about our tone and our demeanor and our attitude, surely when we do have to face those moments, it will reflect sadness and sobriety and not glee and abrasiveness. And then it's also not preaching that is only preaching that an audience wants to hear. Paul says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will accumulate for themselves teachers having itching ears. who will turn away their ears from the truth and toward fables. When we think about the preaching that some would want, there are some who always want the preacher to turn them out feeling good about themselves. I, I prefer preaching those kind of sermons because I like the kind of comments that will file past me on the way out the door that day. It's difficult to stand before a group and to reveal an unpopular truth. And one can never be hateful or belligerent in standing for truth. But one who is too afraid to engage the devil and his army is one who is not a faithful and reliable soldier of Jesus Christ. So Paul would say in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Having done all, stand. I'm trying to imagine Paul before Agrippa, Caesarea Maritima had the occasion every time I've gone to Israel to stand out in that general area. I think it was probably a close proximity between the two. And can you imagine? Here's Paul who can see the harbor and the ship that he's going to get on very soon and he's going to go to Nero. But as he has that overarching mission, he also saw the details. And he took the time to tell Agrippa, a man who would say, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He talks about the hope centered preaching 
that preachers do in the troublesome times. Agrippa II did not even know how troublesome it was for him and those that were to come after him. And the society that was unraveling gradually before them. But he preached hope. And so that's our task. And we'll see that this hope-centered preaching is just like the preaching that Paul did on that occasion. May God give us the strength to do the same. Amen. Amen. Amen.